turn your Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter 17. That's where we're going to spend uh, our morning together, chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible on you, I just invite you to put up your hand and one of our ushers will get you a Bible. We want you to have God's Word in your hand in front of you. Um, it is God's Word that is our authority and, uh, and we come together. One up here, Jared. Um, so, yeah, it's God's, it's God's truth, and uh, I have no wisdom um, and no, uh, no authority. Um, I, I come with God's word, and we submit to it together. Looking at the, uh, the Old Testament in general, um, Martin Luther famously wrote, Here you will find the swaddling clothes and the manger in which Christ lies. Love that. Here you will find the swaddling clothes, and the manger in which Christ lies. Do you, do you read the Old Testament that way? Um, I hope you do. Um, we, we've called this series through Genesis a firm foundation, or this, this section of it, 11 through 36. Because um, as we study these chapters together, as we look at what God was doing through Abraham, um, we, we see the foundations of the Christian faith. God's work in salvation did not begin with the coming of Jesus, right? That, that wasn't the start of what God was doing. It, it was the, the crux of it, the culmination of it, but it began um, from the very beginning. And, and so the whole Old Testament is working up to and leading up to the coming of Christ. And of course, the whole New Testament looking back to the coming of Christ. But this is the, the swaddling clothes and, and the manger in which Christ lies. Um, it is like the the foundation of a building, the roots of the tree, right? The foundation is not the house, um, but the foundation supports the house. It gives shape to the house. It, it gives uh, structure to it. The roots of the tree are not the, the tree, but um, the kind of tree that you have is going to depend on the kind of roots that are in the ground. It holds up the tree. The Old Testament uh, is the Lord laying the foundation of his salvation plan. And it was always the same work. The saints of the Old Testament getting uh, this revelation little by little. They're seeing God's promises and they're hoping in God's promises. They're hoping in Christ. Just like you and I are trusting in Christ, they were trusting in Christ from the other side. And so as we work through these passages, we see God laying that foundation, giving shape and form and structure uh, to the gospel, to the coming of Jesus from the very beginning, he promised um, there would be a rescuer, one who is coming, who will undo the curse of sin, who will uh, undo the brokenness of this world. He would return humanity to essentially where they started. Right? We began in the Garden of Eden um, with God's peace and God's provision and his presence with us, and sin has destroyed that, and his promise was we're going back there. I'm going to bring you back to a place actually better than the Garden of Eden. That's the hope that we're looking forward to. And as we come to Genesis 17, um, we see the, the covenant of God Almighty, the covenant of God Almighty. Now, we've been kind of working through this covenant for a while now. He, God kind of broke it open in Genesis 12 and builds on it in Genesis 15, and then here again in 17, it's the same covenant building. Um, there's something interesting that happens here as we look at chapter 17, um, there are three name changes, uh, and each of those name changes is significant. We'll see uh, a, a little more of the shape of this foundation 
uh, in the changing of these names, we see God working out his plan um, that will lead to the coming of Christ. So um, let's read this together. You can watch for those name changes as we go. Uh, Follow along with me, starting uh, chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, and you, uh, your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, For an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between you and me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in the house or brought in, bought uh, with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. And so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. And I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, from whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's household. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day, as God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. 
And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham, his son, Ishmael, was circumcised. And all the men of his house were born in the house, uh, and those bought with his money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Even as we were praying this morning before the service, that it is um, not the words of men, but the word of God. Lord, help us to receive it as such. Help us to have soft hearts, open ears, willing to hear, to be changed and transformed by your truth. God, we are so flippant. We live in a world that is constantly shifting and changing uh, your word is trustworthy. Lord, help us. Help us now. Lord, I pray that you'd be at work uh, through me. God, if there's anything that I have to say um, that is not true to your word, that, that those words would fall to the ground and be forgotten, that your word would go forth, that you would uh, accomplish what you promised to do um, to build your church. I pray in Jesus' name. As I said, there are three name changes here. Um, I wonder if you caught them. I didn't the first time I read through. Um, we're expecting Abraham. We've been looking for that one for, for five chapters as we've been working our way through, and I've been struggling to say Abram instead of Abraham. Now I'm going to have to fight the other way. Um, maybe you could argue for four if you looked at Isaac, but I'm not looking at Isaac. Um, each of these names is significant. And each one comes with a call to, to trust the Lord in a particular way. Um, the first name change, you know, I didn't notice right away, it's not, it's not Abraham, um, but it's God, God himself. As, as the Lord approaches Abram um, to give him this new name, he actually first gives himself a new name. Verses 1 to 4, we see God Almighty and this call to trust in the power of of God. The Lord comes, verse 1, Abraham uh, is now 99 years old. He is getting old. Another thing we see from that is, is a bit of a timeline here. Um, it has now been 25 years since Abram first heard the call of God, followed him uh, out of the land of, uh, of Ur to Canaan. And it's been about 13 years since Ishmael was born. It's, it's been a while. You can imagine the age of 99, he's waiting for a promised son. This is starting to feel like a slow process. This is starting to make me wonder, Lord, I think he's starting to feel a little hopeless. And we're going to see evidence of that a little further down. So the Lord appeared to Abram once again and, and addressing Abram, he, he speaks to him, he gives him this this name. Um, verse 2, he says to him, um, that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. Now, if you look closely, um, this is not the Lord making a new covenant. There's a couple reasons I think that that's clear. The first is the word for make a covenant. We talked about this a while back. There, the, 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 the new covenant, when you, when you instituted a covenant you would cut a covenant and that language is very consistently used throughout scripture that's not what it says here um, the lord says i will 
make a covenant. That word make uh, is actually the word Natan. Um, we get our name Nathan or Jonathan, um, and it means gift. The Lord is saying, I will, I will gift you, I will give you, I will, I think he's saying, I will fulfill my covenant promises. And then notice he says, uh, he doesn't say, I will make a new covenant. He says, um, I will give you my covenant. There's a specific covenant that he's referring to, a covenant that's already existing, the one that he has already made uh, with Abram. So I will fulfill my covenant with you and multiply you greatly. And then as you look at the promises that he lays out, these are the promises uh, from Genesis 12. He's, he's reiterating the same things, but then also building on them and uh, giving us more detail, greater understanding. But it is significant. Again, as the Lord appears to Abram, uh, he appears to him uh, this time with a new name. He says to Abram, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Um, it's a little bit interesting looking at that. That's a, a well-known name of God, one that we use, uh, I think, frequently, God Almighty, and it's a beautiful name of the Lord. Uh, the trick is, it's actually really tricky to translate. It's not at all clear. Um, essentially, it means something along the lines of God is sufficient. He's enough. Um, some uh, scholars have, have linked it to, um, to the idea of a mountain, that God is high on the mountain. He is lofty. He is exalted. He is lifted up. Um, God Almighty, I think, is a, is a good uh, effort to capture that, that word. Um, after 13 years of silence, Abram is again beginning to wonder, God, what are you doing? God, where's this, where's this going? I'm not seeing the plan work out. The Lord appears to him, and his first words, this reminder of who he is. Abram, are you doubting? Abram, are you questioning? Abram, are you, are you fearful? Abram, I'm the Lord Almighty. I'm the Almighty. I'm the God who is strong and powerful. I'm the God who, who sits above the earth and looks down on it. I am high and lifted up. Uh, and he says to Abram, uh, I am the Lord God Almighty. Walk before me. This idea of walking before God. Um, to, to walk in that way is kind of a Hebrew idiom. idiom um, means to, to live, to, to go about your daily life. Make your decisions Plan your plans, live your life before the Lord, in the presence of God, with this, this conscious idea that, that God Almighty is here. He sees me. He's with me. We so easily get bent out of shape over things. And in some ways, rightly so, we live in this broken world that is so uh, unstable when we see this in a, a, a tornado tearing through our uh, neck of the woods. God says, uh, live before me. Keep your eye on me. I, I don't know if you've got there yet in your small groups or not, but I'm working through this, this series, Behold Your God. He talks about this idea of the difference between an, an abstract knowledge of kind of who God is, an informational knowledge of God, uh, and the difference between that and actually knowing God, actually having a relationship with him, actually living your life uh, as if those facts matter as if they affect you. That's what the Lord is saying here uh, to Abram. Don't be fearful. Don't be anxious. 
We begin to to doubt that God is still at work, that he'll be faithful to do what he's promised to do. We're not seeing it's not going the way we expected. And and God comes to Abram, um, and and he's like a father with a panicking child. Um, I don't know if if your kids ever do this. um, They just freak out. Like they absolutely lose it. it. The reality is gone, and they start... They're scared of something, something spooks them, and they start screaming and hyperventilating, and there's just, it's crazy, it's madness. And what do you do? You kneel down beside them, you wrap your arms around them, and what are the first words you say? Honey, hey, look at me, look at me, right? Look at me. That's what God is doing. He's coming down to Abram, he's wrapping his arms around him, he's saying, look at me, Abram, look at me. Take your eyes off the danger. Take your eyes off the the chaos and the brokenness all around. Just look at me. I am God Almighty. A couple of weeks, Kyle's going to preach on Psalm 46. Um, You can look forward to that. Uh, I know I am. Uh, Verse 10 of that psalm, the Lord says, Be still and know that I am God. That psalm starts with, with wars and chaos and brokenness, and it ends with him saying, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I win in the end. This is not, it's not a question. I will be exalted. Look at, look at me. That's where the Lord begins with Abram. Um, that's where we need to begin. Are you walking before the Lord God Almighty? Is your life lived out with, with God in view? Are your, are your emotions played out with, with the perspective of the Almighty God being with you? Do you wrestle with assurance of your salvation? It's a common conversation that I have, and it is so easy for us to start to look at me. I don't know about my faith and my sin and my brokenness, and I don't, do I really believe and is it enough? Stop. Look at him. Is he really enough? Look at the cross. Did he really do enough? Look at him. Are you wrestling about your your finances? Are you concerned about your your children going astray? There's all these things that scream and yell for our attention, and God says, no, no, look at me. Those things are still real, um, but we need to see them with God in view. So the Lord calls Abram, look at me. Are, are we walking before him? Do you trust in his power? He's God Almighty. That's, that's where we start. Looking at God, he's the foundation. He himself is the source of our, of our hope, of our confidence, our assurance. And after looking at the Lord, um, reminding Abram of his power, he gives Abram then a new name. So verses 5 to 14, he changes Abram's name to Abraham. And, and here is the call um, to trust in the plan of God. So first trust in, the, in, in, my, in my power, now trust in my plan. This is kind of the, the natural outworking here. The end of verse 4, um, the Lord had promised that he would make Abram a father, not just of multitudes, as he had said in the past, but this time he kind of expands that of a multitude of nations, multitudes of multitudes. And look at verse 5, the Lord says to Abram, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abram means something along the lines of exalted father. 
it's, it's quite likely that when he was first given this name, it wasn't about him. It was about his father. As an infant, he was not an exalted father. Um, he had Terah, who was a, a great father. That was the statement that was being made in the naming of this child. Now the Lord says, no, your name shall be Abraham. Abraham is a bit of a play on the language, um, as, as a lot of these names kind of are. Um, it sounds like the words for father of multitudes. And the Lord explains it that way. You will have this name because I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. God is reminding Abraham, this is the plan. This is the plan. It's not changed and isn't going to change. This was God's promise given to Abram 25 years ago when God called him out of Ur, Genesis 12. But the point is, um, right now he has one son of very questionable legitimacy. And so God Almighty is saying, I'm with you. This is my plan. Now there are, there are two elements here. He changes Abraham's name. Uh, and then he affirms the promises of the covenant. And then he gives Abram the sign of the covenant. And, and so let's kind of deal with those in turn. First, let's look at the promise of the covenant. Um, this is kind of verses 6 to 8. Let me just kind of read these again, get them in front of us. The Lord says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into a nation, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Again, this is, this is the manger, the swaddling clothes. Christ is here. God has promised this, this rescuer. He's promised to return humanity to this better-than-garden-of-Eden-like place, back to his, his peace and his provision and his presence. And then God reveals that this rescuer is going to come through Abraham. And then through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now the Lord's revealed that, uh, to, to Abraham that, that kings will come through his line. We look down the, the hall of history, we eventually come um, to the line of Abraham to David, King David. The Lord would reveal to, to David that the coming rescuer would be a king in his line. And so as you open the New Testament, the first verse in the first book of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Sound familiar? That's right out of Genesis. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's looking right back to this passage. Kings will come from you. David comes from him. Christ comes from him. Here it is. This is the rescuer that was promised, starting the, the king from Genesis 17. Jesus would come as the ultimate king. Every king before that is a, a shadow. As you're reading through the book uh, of kings, you can see uh, they, they point forward to Christ. Some in their failing leave us desperately longing for a better king. Some in their success give us a, a shadow, a picture of who Christ, the true king, will be. And when Christ comes, he comes and reigns supreme. The king who will one day bring complete, ultimate peace. 
who will rule in righteousness. That promise is nestled right here in Genesis 17. God is beginning to unveil these things. Verse 7, then God says that he will establish his covenant with Abraham. Uh, He will affirm it. He's going to secure it and, and carry it out. And it will be an everlasting covenant. So what God is doing here is eternal. This is the long game. It will not end. And then the Lord adds um, the promise of the land. Starting um, near the end of verse 7, the Lord promises um, first to be God to you and to your offspring and to give you the land of Canaan and I will be their God. And so he promises this, this land and he sandwiches it between these two promises that he will be their God. He will be with them. And so let's, uh, let's kind of walk through these a little bit. I want to look first at this promise of the land and, and what all is, is packed into that. Um, this is a great example of where Christians have healthy, happy disagreements. Um, and so I'm going to walk right into that and cause all kinds of controversy. And we can fight afterwards and we can hug each other afterwards um, because this is an okay place to disagree. So how exactly is this promise fulfilled? This is something that Christians differ on. This is a huge oversimplification. Um, there are many who would understand the, the descendants of Abraham here as referring specifically to the national people of Israel. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like the the physical descendants of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that this promise is fulfilled in God giving the the physical land of Canaan to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and typically they would see this promise fulfilled uh, in the millennial reign of Christ. Jesus will come back. He will reign on the earth for a, a thousand years. And in that time... Um, The national people of Israel will be living in the physical land of Canaan. Um, And they would see the the promises of God fulfilled to them in that time. I get that. I see where you're coming from. That makes really simple, clear sense of this passage. Um, I get it. Personally, um, as I look at these promises and and looking in the, the scope of Scripture and how it plays out, Um, I look at this promise, and I see it beginning with the national people of Israel receiving the literal land of Canaan under David, Um, but I think it's pointing through that to something greater. And so I'm okay with national Israel maybe never receiving the promised land any more than they did under David and Solomon in that time, because I think the, the eternal nature of this promise is what is in focus. It's a a promise to those who are children of Abraham, not by physical descent, but by faith. Galatians 3, 7, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. The true children of Abraham are those who, like Abraham, trust the Lord. And I think the physical land, uh, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land where God's temple would be, the land where they would have peace and the fulfillment of God's promises, I don't think that was ever the goal Um, but was meant as a a tangible picture. It was a physical promise of what was to come. The provision, the peace, the presence of God, it's it's part of this Eden to Eden theme. Uh, And so it was never about the physical land. It was always about eternity with him. It symbolized something much greater. Um, My mom often does this. Um, 
just this past Christmas. Um, we were sitting in my parents' living room, gathered around the Christmas tree, opening presents, and our youngest, Elijah, uh, opened this little box and, and was way too excited for what he found there. He found in that box a small plastic bike. He's a little old for that toy. <laughs> it's not that exciting. Um, it was kind of cheap. But the note with it explained, when bikes come out in the spring, we're going to buy you a new bike. He, he's, he's not excited about the toy bike. He's excited about the real one to come. It, it was a placeholder. It was a physical promise. And so he played with that bike that afternoon for about 10 minutes. Um, and he was really excited when spring came and bikes got on sale and, and grandma and grandpa took him bike shopping. Um, I, I think it's of the same kind of nature. The Lord is saying, I'm going to give you uh, a home, a place of peace, a place of my rule and my presence. And, and he's looking through the land of Canaan to eternity. He's looking beyond the physical people of Israel to the people of faith. Um, and, and he's making this physical promise of what is to come. That's why I think it's sandwiched together between these promises of the presence of God, that he will be their God and they will be, he'll be with them. Now, I don't want to cut this too sharply. Most of those who are looking for physical fulfillment for the national people, they also would say, yeah, yeah, there's something greater to come. They're, they're not excluding that. Um, it's really, I think, it, in, in its best case, is just a disagreement over emphasis more than anything. But what we see here is God saying, through Abraham, I will restore humanity. I will bring humanity back to, to a place of my peace and my provision and my presence is going to be better than the Garden of Eden. This is God promising to send Jesus through Abraham to bring sinful, broken humanity back to, to this better than Eden existence that will last for an eternity. That's why this is an eternal covenant that God is making. Now, that's the promises of the covenant. Verse 9 moves into the second part, um, the sign of God's covenant. Um, look at verse 9. Let me read kind of 9 to 14 here. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant. Didn't know you were coming to church to talk about circumcision this morning, did you? You should have read ahead. Um, God makes this promise of what he would do. This is my part. I'm going to fulfill these promises. And then he turns to Abraham and he says, now here's your part. Here's your side. As for you, Abraham, keep your end of the deal. Every male born in your house or bought as a slave shall be circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And so at that point, every male adult was to be 
circumcised. And then going forward, every baby that was born um, on the eighth day would be circumcised. And this would be a sign between them and the Lord uh, that they were part of his covenant. This is weird, right? Anyone else with me? Like, what? Why? What is going on? Um, this is Abraham's part in, in keeping this deal between him and God. And, and as strange as this may seem to you and I, it's not out of left field. It's not crazy. Um, notice God doesn't explain to Abraham what circumcision is. He just says, do it. And Abraham does it. Tells us Abraham had some concept. He had some idea of what God was asking. This was a cultural practice uh, in different ways and different places around them. The most direct connection is probably from Egypt. Abram has had some dealings with Egypt. He's familiar with the culture there. Um, in Egypt at this time, all of the priests were circumcised. And so this was an indication um, of being set apart. There's some, there's some sense of maybe there's some cleansing kind of an idea to it, but the main significance is that you are marked off as a priest. They are consecrated. This, this group of people is set aside to serve uh, their gods in their temples. But it's interesting where only the priests in Egypt were circumcised. In, in Abraham's house, every single male was to be circumcised. Of course, in their culture, um, we have to understand is circumcising the men. The men are the heads of the household. That's including the women. This is a family thing. That's the way they see it. Um, but it's all of them now. All of the children of Abraham are set aside to the Lord, are consecrated to the, to the service of God. If you look down at uh, verses 22 to 26, um, as soon as the Lord is done talking with Abraham, they obey. They do it. To, to the letter, they do exactly what the Lord commanded on that very day. Abraham was to commit himself. They were all to commit themselves to the Lord as their master, as their God. He was to, to give himself completely in, in submission to God. This, by the way, comes back to Abraham's new name. To name someone is absolutely to exercise authority over them, right? I can say when I have a child, his name will be Ezra. If I come over to your child and say, his name's going to be John, um, you'd probably say, back off, <laughs> right? What is this, some kind of crazy cult? You don't get to name my kids. I have authority over my kids. Um, the Lord is saying, I have authority over you, to name you. Now, recognize that authority, submit to me. And so this circumcision is this physical marking that, that was meant to point them forward to a spiritual reality. Just like the wedding ring, right? It's so much more than a, than a piece of metal, or for many of us now as a piece of silicone, um, but, it, but it's a symbol. Have I, uh, have I abandoned my wife by switching from gold to silicone? No. The, the symbol is the same. That was the, that was the point. They were to be physically set apart by this mark on their body, um, but, but that was to show them and to remind them of the importance of fully submitting to the Lord from the heart. That's why Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, 
so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So that's what circumcision was about. It was, a, it was supposed to be a physical reminder of a reality of the heart and to have a circumcised heart was to love the Lord your God with all that you are, to submit to him, to follow him. Romans 2.29, Paul picks up on this. He clarifies, what does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean to be uh, a child of Abraham? He says to be a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, not by the law. It was by the heart. His praise is not from man, but from God. And you notice the text here says that this also would be an everlasting covenant. Verse 13, that ever make you wonder? It sure made me wonder. We don't do circumcision. We don't talk about this in the church. This isn't a thing that we do. I thought this was an everlasting covenant. But it was never about the piece of skin. That's the point. It was always about the heart. And the, the command to, to love and trust and submit to the Lord, yeah, that's, that's still around. We still preach that. That's the everlasting covenant. And so the, the physical circumcision, again, is this placeholder, is this physical representation of what is to come. It's interesting as you come to the New Testament, as we come through Christ to the church. 1 Peter 2.9 says you are a royal priesthood. Jesus is king. We become this new nation under him as king and we are all set apart as priests to him. There's continuity there. There's also a promise here. Circumcision was to happen on the eighth day. What's up with that? Why the eighth day? We haven't seen anything about the eighth day yet. God created the world in seven days, and their world revolved around that. On the seventh day, God rested. It was complete. Actually, it's interesting. The seventh day, if you're looking at the creation narrative, the seventh day doesn't end. Every other day has morning and evening, the sixth day, and then it moves on. The seventh day, God rested. The eighth day is a reference to new creation. That's what he's saying. This is God's promise of a, of a recreated world to come. He's saying, in this act of circumcision being set apart to me on the eighth day, you are, you are joining into the new creation that's come. You're being set aside for that, this new humanity that will live with God for eternity. Now we're going to get controversial again, just for fun. Um, here's another great disagreement. Those of you who grew up in a Baptist context, you, you might not know this, um, the practice of circumcising babies here um, is why some churches today, faithful, believing brothers and sisters, baptize their babies. It doesn't make sense to us. Um, this is why. They, they would draw a pretty straight line um, from Israel to the church, uh, and then a pretty straight line from circumcision to baptism. Circumcision is gone. Baptism takes its place. They circumcise their infants. We baptize our infants. And so they would see that coming out of here. Um, and good and faithful. So Catholic Church is a whole different ballgame. Um, we're talking about Reformed Church. We're talking about um, Presbyterian Church. Um, they would circumcise their infants the same way Abram circumcised his kids, saying, I hope you will live up to this. I hope that one day your heart will trust in the Lord. Um, they would baptize their infants 
saying, we are hopeful that one day you will come to trust in God. One day you will put your faith in, in Christ and you will live up to this baptism that you're receiving today. And so they, they, they see it as that sign in direct connection with circumcision. Um, as Baptists, we would say, well, you missed a step. You can't go straight from Israel to the church. You can't go straight from circumcision to baptism. You have to go through Christ. It's a new covenant. There's some things that are the same. There's absolutely continuity, but there's some things that are different. There's also some discontinuity. And so we see baptism in light of the new covenant in Christ, and that's different from the covenant that God had with Abraham. Um, one of the significant differences, I think, shows up this promise from Jeremiah 31. Um, Hebrews 8 quotes that again, picks up on it, shows us um, this is about the church um, but listen to what he said, Jeremiah 31, 34, or, or Hebrews 8, 11. Um, the Lord says, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. So that's a different thing in the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, they didn't all know the Lord. In the Old Covenant... Through Abraham and Moses, um, they were born into the people of Israel, God's special covenant people. And they were all circumcised. They all received the sign of that covenant. But not all of them had circumcised hearts. Not all of them actually trusted in God. And so the people of Israel is this mixed community. Some believers, some unbelievers, all God's covenant people in one sense. And so the people of Israel would be saying to their neighbor or to their brother, know the Lord, trust God, live up to this covenant that you've been given, live up to your circumcision in that way, because it was this mixed community. As we come through Christ into the new covenant, into the, the church, the people of God today, God says this will no longer be a new covenant. As we pass from old covenant, sorry, no longer be a mixed community. As we pass from Old Covenant to New Covenant, there's going to be a clarifying, a purifying. And Jeremiah says they will all know the Lord. The church becomes this true, pure reality of what Israel was pointing forward to, imperfectly foreshadowing. And that's why um, you received circumcision when you were born into the covenant family for the people of Israel. And you receive baptism when you're born into the new covenant. When are you born into the new covenant? Not at physical birth, but at your rebirth. When you're born again, you enter into the new covenant. And you receive baptism as the sign of that covenant. So the new covenant is not a mixed community. All of those who are truly part of God's covenant people today, the, the true church, um, are fully set aside to him. That's why Paul can say, Romans 6, 3, um, all of us who have been baptized have been baptized into Jesus. Um, we're baptized in his death. So everyone who's received this, truly received the sign of the new covenant has been uh, received salvation, has been baptized into the death of Christ. So all that to say, changing Abram's name to Abraham, God is saying, I have a plan. Trust me, I'm working this out. Trust my plan, trust in my promises of the covenant and live in the sign of the covenant. 
People talk about God these days far too often. Um, we, we talk about God as if, as if we're interviewing him for a job, right? This is the criteria that I'm looking for. This is, this is what I want in a God. These are the things. And, and if the God of the Bible happens to fit that criteria, maybe I'll give him the job, right? Congratulations, God. I've reviewed your application, and I'd like to offer you the job of being my God. Great. Or perhaps, thank you for your application for the role of God. I appreciate your interest, but after, interview, uh, after reviewing your resume, your qualifications, and your background, I've decided to move forward with other applicants. Sorry, God. That's how we think. That's not how this works. That is to severely misunderstand our relationship with God Almighty. He is the creator God. He is the sovereign of the universe. He's, he's not trying to win your approval. He has a plan, and he is working out his glorious rescue plan, and he simply commands, trust me. Trust me. Submit to me. Give yourself wholly and fully to me. Do you trust him? Not does he fit your criteria. Do you happen to like this God? But do you trust him? Do you submit to him as the almighty God? Are you willing to say, I'm his. I'm fully and completely committed to him. Set aside, my life is his. While we're on the topic, if you've not been baptized, um, this way of physically expressing that commitment as Jesus commanded us to do, as the apostles continued to teach, um, there's a baptism service coming up. Come talk to me. I would love to have that conversation. If you want to talk more and understand that, better, I would love to do that with you. Um, so God Almighty, trust in my power. Abraham, trust in my plan. And then thirdly, the Lord changes Sarai's name to Sarah, saying, trust in my promise. Trust in my power, trust in my plan, trust in my promise. Look at uh, verses 15 through 21. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings and peoples shall come from her. And Abram fell on his face, and he laughed and said to himself, Shall the child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety-nine years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, you have heard, uh, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation." But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you this time next year. Now the promise is getting real. This is getting specific and, and explicit for Abraham. Not only will he be a, a father of multitudes someday, but you will be the father of Isaac, who will come from Sarah, and it's going to happen this time next year. So here's the final name change. Sarai's name is changed to Sarah. Both of the names mean something along the lines of princess. 
Um, the difference between them is, is actually similar to it is in English. Um, it's just a, a basically a, a pronunciation switch, maybe a difference in dialect. Um, but the Lord renaming Sarai to Sarah is God saying, this is not anymore, this is, this is no longer just your name, this is your destiny. This is who you are. Remember from chapter 16, God had promised to give Abraham offspring to bless the world through this offspring. But Sarah is barren. She can't have children. And so Abram and Sarai decide uh, God's way obviously isn't working. We see the end goal. We don't see how to get from here to there. Um, so we're going to make our own way. We'll fix this. They would come up with a strategy to try to fulfill God's plan on their own. And Sarai would give Abram uh, her slave girl as his wife. And that way Abram could have a son. And Sarai's kind of left out of the picture, but at least God's promise can go forward through the descendants of Abraham. And that son's name is Ishmael. Now at this point, Ishmael's 13 years old. He's becoming a young man. And Abraham and Sarai haven't gotten any younger. In fact, um, the possibility of them having kids is now far gone. Menopause is in the past. This ain't happening. And the Lord says to Abraham, trust in my power. I'm God Almighty. Trust in my plan. You will be Abraham, the father of multitudes. And Abraham responds and says, yeah, I see, I see what you're getting at. I see where you're going, and that's, that's great and all, but can't Ishmael do it? Like, he's right here, right? That's what's meant by verse 18. Abraham says, let Ishmael walk before you. God, let him be your guide. Let's be realistic, God. Let's work with what we've got. And the Lord says, no, no. Verse 19, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. Your wife. Not this slave girl whom you committed adultery with. Your wife. And you shall name him Isaac. We'll get more into Isaac's name soon enough. Um, and I will establish my covenant with him. An everlasting covenant. Or his offspring forever. Ishmael would get physical blessings. He would have great descendants. But God says, my covenant that's coming with Isaac. Isaac, the son of Sarah. That will be the son that I use. Galatians 4 gives us some insight here. Paul makes a contrast um, between Ishmael and Isaac, between Hagar and Sarah. Um, Galatians 4, 22, 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. So the question is, how is God's plan going to work out? How is it going to be fulfilled? How is God going to do what he's planning to do? Will God rescue humanity from sin and death and, and restore humanity to a better than Garden of Eden state um, through the work of the flesh? through the striving and the, and the scheming and the work of Abram and Sarai producing Ishmael? Is it our struggling and our working to clean ourselves up and, and, and present ourselves to God? Ishmael, not only the father of Islam, but the father of every worldly religion, every other religion out there, says, do these things and then you will be 
acceptable toward God. Do these things, work hard enough, and maybe you'll earn a place in eternity. Or you'll get to nirvana or you'll get inner peace or whatever it is. But Isaac represents an entirely different approach. Isaac represents the promise, and it's totally different. The birth of Isaac didn't come about by any scheming and working uh, on behalf of Abram and Sarai. In fact, there was nothing they could do. It was done and gone. It was over. It was dead in the water. It was absolutely impossible by human striving, and God would just do it. God would just break through in a miraculous way and bring it about. He would fulfill his promise through the impossible. Romans 4, Paul writes again about Genesis 17, these two avenues of trying to be reconciled to the Lord. And he says this, Romans 4, 16 and 17, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, all Abraham's offspring, not only to the inherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. It's not about your effort. It's not about your work and, and keeping the law and, and cleaning yourself up. It's about faith. It's about trusting in the promise of God. It's about God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. This is why God can guarantee it to all Abraham's offspring. Think about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. says, I've kept all the commandments. What more can I do? And Jesus says, well, if you're going that route, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, keep going. You've not done enough yet. You're not there. And it's shocking. The disciples watch this happen and they say to, to Jesus, who then can be saved? Jesus doesn't say, oh, work a little harder. Oh, you got to do a little more. He wasn't quite there. Jesus says, you're right. It is impossible. And what is impossible with man is possible with God. That's the point. That's how, how God can guarantee it to all Abram's offspring. Because He'll do it. Back to Romans 4, Paul then clarifies exactly what he means. Who are Abraham's offspring? Who are we talking about here? The true children of Abraham. Not only those who, who are physical descendants of Abraham. Not those who keep the law. Once again, the, the true children of Abraham are those who share in, Paul's words, share in the faith of Abraham. And then he looks around at the church. He's writing to the Christians in Rome. And he says to them, Abraham, who's the father of us all. We can look around the church here and say, Abraham, the father of us all. Everyone who believes the people of faith are the children of Abraham. The ones who will receive the blessings promised to Abraham and to his offspring. And he explains that's what God meant when he said, I will make you the father of many nations. Not, again, you have the, the physical reality. Abraham was the father. Many nations descended from him. But then there's this greater spiritual reality that around the throne of Christ in eternity were people from every tongue and tribe and nation. It's just like Isaac was brought into existence miraculously. God brought life out of Abraham and Sarah 
when Sarah's womb was dead and Abram was a hundred years old, God continues to build the family of Abraham miraculously. Not through the flesh, not through people striving to do better, but through the promise. God bringing into existence things that formerly did not exist. God gathering a multitude of people of faith out from this sinful, scattered nations of the world. God's plan to reconcile the world to himself, to restore humanity to his his peace and his provision and his presence, it, it won't happen through human work and human effort. You can work all day trying to obey God's law, trying to do the right thing, trying to fix yourself and and trying to repair your broken relationship with him, trying to undo the damage of sin. And just like Abraham and Sarah, they they came up with Ishmael. They came up with a, a facsimile. They came up with something close. You might come up with something close. You might be able to come to church and fit in. You might have a generally moral family. But that's not God's covenant. That's not God's blessing. You might have something that looks like what God promised. But God's actual promise, his eternal covenant, his saving work is not coming through human effort. It won't happen through our scheming. God says, trust my promise. I will do it. I will fix it. Remember, it was back in Genesis 15, verse 6. Before any of these commands, before the covenant of circumcision was given, Before Abraham had obeyed a single thing that it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He already has that in his back pocket as these commands are coming. That reframes this whole chapter. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 17. The Lord says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That's the requirement. Abraham can't do it. Not perfectly. He couldn't live blameless before God. He had already failed a dozen times. How are you doing? You walking blamelessly before God since the day of your birth? Look at the sign of circumcision. Abram's side of the covenant was to be fully devoted, completely consecrated to the Lord. Again, um, sounds great, but carried out. Like just try for maybe an hour. So it's in the wake of these impossible commands The Lord says, trust my promise. I will do it. The Lord had already counted Abram's faith as righteousness. And of course, he can do that because the promise would be fulfilled. Because Sarah would bear a son. And God's promise would continue to be established and clarified down through the ages, through the pages of the Old Testament until all of the promises of God would find their answer, their their climax, their fulfillment in the full and final offspring of Abraham. That's Jesus. And, and, And it's him. It's because of his perfect life and obedience. He did walk before God and be blameless. He fulfilled that. And because of his death on the cross, even being perfect, he died in our place. Remember, those who are not circumcised, what will happen to them? Anyone who is not circumcised will be cut off from the covenant. There's a play on words there, if you're wondering. If you don't cut off, you will be cut off. Our hearts are not fully devoted to the Lord. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. But Jesus was cut off 
in our place on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Through faith in him, those who are unable to walk before God blameless, those whose hearts are not fully committed to him as they should be, who come by faith and repentance before him, can be forgiven, can be counted as righteous even though they're not. Not because of their good works and their striving, but because of the grace of God. It's through his promise. Jesus becomes the great and final Adam. In him, we have this new creation and a new humanity born out of him. A new creation in Christ. Looking forward to his return, we will ultimately find all of the promises Not only those made to to Abraham, but those made to, to Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and all the prophets come to full completion. Sin and death will be finally wiped away. No more. Every broken and painful part of this existence will cease to exist, will be undone. And he will recreate this earth. King Jesus will reign supreme over his multitude of nations, a new people, glorified eternal bodies, sin finally cut off from us, and the Lord will be with his people, and he will be our God. That's a good day. And there we will have peace of God, we'll have the provision of God, we'll have the presence of God, not because of anything we have done, but all because of what he has done in Jesus Christ, and we will have complete and endless joy forevermore. Do you trust him? Do you see God Almighty? Do you trust his plan? Are you trusting in his promise? Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to us who are so unworthy. Lord, we are born in sin and we live into that. We deserve nothing but your wrath and you have shown grace. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see afresh again the glory of Christ, the wonder of the cross, that we who are sinners could be forgiven, that we who have um, wandering sinful hearts can have a hope of life with you, of eternity with you, have assurance of it by faith, knowing that it's not our striving that we have to meet some standard that we can't find and continually struggling, but, but just to rest in Christ. Lord, that we would then live into that glorious salvation, that our lives would be offered as sacrifices to you for the glory of your name as we trust in you, as we hope in you, God. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's close in song together.